next. An encore in-conversation interview with WAMC's Alan Shartok and James Reston Jr., author of The Accidental Victim, JFK, Lee Harvey Oswald, and The Real Target in Dallas. It's next. Hi, this is Alan Shartok, excited for the opportunity to interview author James Reston Jr. about his latest book, The Accidental Victim, JFK, Lee Harvey Oswald, and The Real Target in Dallas, published by Zola Books. James Reston Jr. is the author of 15 books, three plays, and numerous articles in national magazines, winner of Prix Italia and the DuPont Columbia Award for his chilling 1983 90-minute radio documentary on National Public Radio, Father Cares, The Last of Jonestown. His last five historical works, Galileo, A Life and Last Apocalypse, Warriors of God, Dogs of God, and Defenders of the Faith have been translated into 13 foreign languages. Warriors of God and Collusion at Home Plate have been optioned by Hollywood. The Last Apocalypse was a main selection of the Book of the Month Club. Warriors of God is an international bestseller with over 200,000 copies sold worldwide and still selling. Fragile Innocence, his memoir, Bringing Up His Handicapped Daughter, reached number eight on the Washington Post bestseller list. In 1976-1977, Reston was David Frost's Watergate advisor for the famous Frost-Nixon interviews seen by 57 million people worldwide. His narrative of that experience was published in 2007 and entitled The Conviction of Richard Nixon, The Untold Story of the Frost-Nixon Interviews, and was the main inspiration to the British playwright Peter Morgan in the making of his hit London play, Frost Nixon. Reston is a major character and the narrator of the play in the Hollywood adaption of the play, directed by Ron Howard and nominated for five Academy Awards. Reston is played by the actor Sam Rockwell. His articles have appeared in the New Yorker, Vanity Fair, Time, the New York Times Magazine, Smithsonian, National Geographic, Esquire, American Theater, Playboy, and Rolling Stone. He recently contributed to the forward of the National Geographic book, Eyewitness to History, in recent in years, he has lectured widely in the United States and overseas in the Millennium, the Crusades, the Spanish Inquisition, and the Ottoman at Vienna, citing their re relevance to modern issues. He's been a fellow at the American Academy in Rome, a fellow at the John W. Klug Center at the Library of Congress, and a senior scholar at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars in Washington. Reston was a, an assistant to U.S. Secretary of the Interior, Stuart Udall, 1964-65, U.S. Army, 65-68, Lecturer in Creative Writing, University of North Carolina, 7181. Newsweek, PBS, and BBC candidate to be the first writer on the NASA space shuttle. Married with three children, James lives in Chevy Chase, Maryland. You can find him online at www.restinbooks.com or at www.jrobsessions.com. James Reston, how old are you? Uh, let me think here a minute. I guess I'm 71. That's impossible. How could you be 71? You, yeah, I mean, I'll be 72 shortly. If me too, me. but that's extraordinary. You've done an awful lot. Are you a happy man that you've gotten all of this under your belt? Oh, very happy indeed. I always wanted to live the life of letters and of writing books, and that's what I've done. Where'd you go to college? University of North Carolina. And were you happy there? Very much so. My heart is still in Chapel Hill. I, I taught there for 10 years from 71 to 81, as you mentioned. And yeah. Oh, very sorry to have left, but uh, that's the way life moves. Yeah. Well, all of these things that you've done, how do you balance things? Well, you know, if you set out to be a writer and an author and want a whole career and a whole life of that, there are peaks and valleys. There have been some very uh, deep valleys along the way, but I was absolutely determined to continue this form of life, and, you know, I'm very unhappy if I'm not writing something, so I've been at it for 40 years now, so that can produce quite a lot of work. When do you do it? Do you do it in the morning? Do you do it at night? In, well, you know, I started out, as you mentioned, I was in the Army for uh, three years, 65 to 68. When I came out, I had written the first draft of my first book, which was a novel, and for 10 years or so thereafter, I continued a kind of a regimen that I had in the military of getting up at 5.30 in the morning and being at my writing table by 7. 
when children came along, that mm. discipline slackened a little bit. But I'm still a morning person. Me too. I, I love it. And that's when I wrote my dissertation and did everything else because nobody's really around to bother you. But I do it earlier than you do. I do it at three. My goodness. <laughs> so let me ask you about how it is to find your own meter as opposed to the family name. Well, that's an interesting thing, the shadow problem. As you uh, suggest, my father was a very, very prominent columnist for the New York Times, and unfortunately, he gave me his name. <laughs> so I'm a, a junior, but, you know, there are other juniors that have done all right along the way. That was a difficulty for me until perhaps in the 1980s, perhaps 15 or 20 years into my life as, a, as an author, that there was a lot of confusion there. There's still a bit of confusion, actually. If you go to the Library of Congress, my books get mixed up with his but he stopped writing in the uh, about 83, something like that, with, the, with his memoir. And I continued on to produce really every couple of years a new book, and it became a bit easier after that. Was he affirmative about your work? Well, I think he didn't quite understand why I didn't go immediately into journalism, which is what he wanted me to do. You know, I went back to Chapel Hill after my first novel was published. I was hired there to be a lecturer in creative writing, and that was a very productive 10 years for me of taking me out of Washington, taking me away from journalism, putting me in the company of very fine writers and novelists in North Carolina. So those 10 formative years away from Washington were extremely important to my career. He didn't quite understand why I would do that for 10 years when I was making 3000 a course to teaching only two Sorry. courses each semester. So those were very thin years. I had to, uh, had to do a good bit of magazine writing on the side to supplement my academic salary. And I actually went into the Army in 1965, having um, worked for eight months at the Chicago Daily News. So theoretically, I could have gone immediately back into journalism, but, you know, I was very much a product of the 1960s, and doing straightforward daily journalism was not really what I wanted to do. Why did you go in the Army when a lot of other guys were avoiding it? You know, that's interesting. It's, it's something that um, uh, certainly the younger generation doesn't really understand, the sort of the moral dilemmas of the Vietnam generation I looked at this, I think, through a moral lens that I was opposed to the Vietnam War. Of course, under the Kennedy years, although one was of draftable age, you know, there was not much involvement in Vietnam. And I was actually, you mentioned that I'd worked with Stuart Udall. That was my first mm -hmm. job out of the Army. I became his uh, speechwriter as a very young man, and he was keeping me out of the military. But in September of 1965, when Johnson made this proclamation, LBJ made this proclamation that this is really war, I felt I wasn't really, truly a conscientious objector. I didn't really want to be a malingerer and, you know, avoid military service on some sort of phony thing. So I went into the military, but I, I wanted to control that that military career so that I didn't go, go into combat. It's one of those things that mm -hmm. one does. So I signed up for an extra year, and it was a contractual relationship with the military that I could go into military intelligence and then get foreign language training. So I had a year of Japanese through the military. And this is actually relevant to accidental victim, that I was trained in the recruitment of foreign agents. So when we were trained to recruit an agent to do something extremely dangerous, there needed to be uh, really three principles. One is that the agent had access to the information that you wanted. Secondly, that there was a very deep emotional motive for doing a dangerous thing. And lastly, that they would be re reliable, that there would be reliability. And this relates actually to my lens for Lee Harvey Oswald, that, you know, he really didn't meet any of those tests if he had really been an agent of a foreign government or an agent of the mafia or something. So, mm -hmm. so I was able to relate my military experience in this book to considering 
of the whole conspiracy side of things and the motive for Lee Harvey Oswald. Did you have rank? I got out as a buck sergeant. Interesting. You gave them the extra year. My twin brother got to be a captain doing the same thing in social work. But you were an enlisted man. Yes, I was. But, you know, that was also a rather honorable uh, mm-hmm. relationship between the military and the uh, the enlistee. And it always has angered me immensely in the Iraq mm. period where people were enlisted for a certain amount of time and then they were kept on in the military in this so- so-called stop-loss yeah, yeah, thing yeah. against their will. In my case, it was a straightforward, honorable contract. So where were you when JFK died? I was working for Stuart Udall at that time. Uh-huh. I was 23. And they were and, close friends. And interestingly, half of the cabinet, the Kennedy cabinet, was on its way to Japan on November the oh. 22nd, mm-hmm. including Stuart Udall. And that plane, of course, turned around when they, when they got the news. But when I got the news close to the secretary's office, we all, the staff, all gathered in the back room of the secretary's office, and we watched Walter Cronkite. The Udalls were uh, Mormons, right? Were Mormons, yes. yes. Was that reflected in their grief, uh, Mo and, and his brother? I don't know the answer to that because I never talked to them about Mormonism, actually. I think they may have been practicing Mormons, but I don't think they were terribly devout. I was an intern in a congressman's office, and they were the only ones who didn't drink. And there was a frequent gathering with them, you know, at the time. Frank Thompson, Jr., you may remember that name. Um, Oh, yes. The question I have for you is, let's talk about the assassination. You have a very specific point of view, which in which you think it was an accident. Why don't you parse for us, James Reston, Jr., why don't you parse for us the concurrent theories on how JFK came to die, how you eliminated some, and how you arrived at this one. Well, as I mentioned already on the conspiracy side of things, the starting point for me was my military training, that it was inconceivable to me that so unreliable, so muddle-headed a character as Lee Harvey Oswald would ever become the agent of a grand evil conspiracy to kill the President of the United States. And that remains my centerpiece to dismiss all of these conspiracy theories. I mean, it's just inconceivable that Lee Harvey Oswald would have been somebody's patsy or somebody's agent. So it was easy for me to dismiss all the conspiracy theories of it's the mafia or it's Russia or it's Cuba or whatever. And also the chronology of the fall of 1963 gives a lie to any possibility that there was this well-planned conspiracy where Lee Harvey Oswald would have been the center of it. So if you dismiss all of that at the get-go, as I have done, it really brings it down to the psychology of Lee Harvey Oswald himself. And what I've done in Accidental Victim is to focus on the psychology of Oswald and not his politics. Because, once again, going back to the military side of things, I think people who are engaged in very dangerous things and are agents, you know, they are not usually motivated just by money or by some sort of abstract political idea, but something very deep and emotional. And if we're talking about murder, much less murder of a president of the United States, there has to be some deep-seated emotional anger or rage or fury to make that person pick up a rifle and kill, kill anybody, much less the president. So that was the starting point for me. It was very clear from my research in a biography I wrote of John Connolly in 1989 that on the one hand, Lee Harvey Oswald had nothing but admiration for President Kennedy. He supported his politics on civil rights. He approved of Kennedy negotiating in 1963 a nuclear test ban treaty. Kennedy was softening his attitude towards Cuba. And his wife, Marina, was pregnant with their second child. And Jackie Kennedy was also pregnant, you'll recall, in 1963. Uh, tragically losing her child in uh, August of 1963. Well, Lee Harvey Oswald and Marina Oswald followed the pregnancy of Jackie Kennedy with great interest. And so 
you know, there is nothing in all of that that leads to that fury and rage that I'm talking about that I think is a requirement for the murderous instinct. John Connolly is somebody quite different. And what I have done in, in this book, which deepens considerably something I started with the Connolly biography, is to look into a relationship which existed between John Connolly and Lee Harvey Oswald that went back to February of 1962. And that had to do with the change in his military discharge. So I need to know a little bit more, I think we all do, about Connolly himself. What was he like? Well, he's one of the giants of uh, the last 50 years of the um, 20th century. He um, had an um, extraordinary career of being an intimate of LBJ, going back to the, to the stolen election of 1948. And he was a kind of second choice to be uh, Secretary of the Navy uh, as an intimate of LBJ, since LBJ was JFK's vice president. And so he Connolly got the job as Secretary of the Navy. But not a happy vice president, was he, LBJ? Uh, no, not a happy uh, vice president, but this was a political deal. Um, sure, they threw, know, they threw him a, something. A bauble yeah, yeah, to, yeah, sure. um, to LBJ to have his, his intimate, John Connolly, in the administration. So I guess he was a pretty good Secretary of the Navy, and then he decided that he wanted to go back and run for governor of Texas. He became governor of Texas, and then, of course, was in the car with JFK on November 22nd, 1963. Okay, but, but James, if I can, let's go back for a second to tell us a little bit more about the personality of the character of John Connolly. Yes, well, he, he perfectly represented the kind of image of the Texan that was very popular. He was very handsome. He was very tall. He was very articulate. He very much liked it when people would say he was, he was kind of the John F. Kennedy of Texas. Uh, when you put him on a horse, he looked fabulous. He was very, very much a booster of Texas business. He was very conservative. And, you know, in some ways, in the period of, of uh, the early 60s, when in the Deep South you had George Wallace in Alabama and Ross Barnett in uh, Mississippi, he was very much against the move towards integration, very much a states' rights kind of character. So the, the deep conservatism of, of uh, John Connolly as a Southern Democratic governor in the 1960s does play into the dynamic of the trip to Dallas. But, you know, Connolly has been painted by some as a sort of a junior Lyndon Johnson, but considering what Johnson was about, that doesn't seem to, to play right, does it? No, I think that's a totally different, uh, a totally different thing. Johnson, of course... Uh, was progressive. Uh, what he did as president is puts what JFK did as president in the shadow. Absolutely. And there was uh, real tensions between LBJ and John Connolly on, on the political front. Of course, we could parenthetically leap forward to know that, that Connolly became an intimate of Richard Nixon and changed parties and so forth. So his politics did not mirror the progressive politics of Lyndon Johnson. Johnson could be mean when he needed to be. It was commonly a mean man? Oh, I think these giants of, of that period could be very mean. I mean, they really had their elbows out. They knew what they wanted. They knew who their friends were and who their enemies were. And, you know, they really got into it in a way that is quite different, I think, politically and culturally to the way in which political dialogue takes place at the moment. So, yeah, he could be a very tough guy and very effective. I think he was a very good governor. I think he was a very good secretary of, of the Treasury later. Was he a womanizer? A little bit, yes, but I think not on the level of John Johnson Kennedy. or Kennedy. Was Johnson capable of killing, um, attacking your thesis? Was Johnson... <laughs> Capable of killing JFK? That is utterly absurd. I mean, totally and utterly absurd. I mean, it's made good entertainment, and this is the problem with conspiracy theories. Uh, this is the most outrageous of them all. But that, you know, to write a play about, uh, J about LBJ is the 
secret murderer of uh, John F. Kennedy is entertaining, just like it's entertaining to think about uh, KGB agents or mafia characters recruiting Lee Harvey Oswald. And the regrettable part of the the bathos over the JFK commemoration was that so much attention was paid to these absurd theories, partly because they're much more entertaining than to think that this was an act that was done by a muddle-headed, wretched little man called Lee Harvey Oswald. Well, but, but let me ask you this. Isn't it possible, by the way, just so everybody understands, I'm with you on this, <laughs> but isn't it possible that you had a muddle-headed guy who looked vulnerable and who somebody came along and said, hey, we could get this guy to go up and pull the trigger, you know, on the president, keep out of it? No, I don't think it's possible. It's not possible for so many reasons. You can start with the um, rifle that he had with its, you know, for that he paid $18 for or something and the lowest grade ammunition possible. You know, I think, you know, if you really want to think about the assassins of political leaders, one needs to see the film Day of the Jackal, mm -hmm. where if... A mafia or a uh, foreign government wanted to assassinate the president of the United States, they would get a professional, and they would give that professional, you know, the best possible weapon, the best possible ammunition, and, and it would take months and months, if not a couple of years, of planning. But the JFK assassination is really defined by spontaneity and by the cruelness of fate, I think. I understand why it's comfortable for the American people to to want to think that there is some grand evil empire behind this this horrendous act of assassinations. It's a comfortable notion. But unfortunately, it's not true. Okay. Just reminding everybody, we're talking with author James Rustin Jr. about his latest book, The Accidental Victim, JFK, Lee Harvey Oswald, and The Real Target in Dallas, and it's published by Zola Books. Okay. So you just said something that I found quite provocative, which is if you were going to do it, you would find the right hit man to do it. And you would. Can you think of such an example in history? Uh, the only um, one that comes to my mind is perhaps M.L. King. Yeah, I don't uh, know that Byron de, de, de Beckwith was uh, was professional in that that sense. I don't know about that exactly. The, you know, we have these conspiracies of the Lincoln conspiracy. Sure. Um, we have the conspiracy in Sarajevo that begins the World War II. But mm. we have this whole collection of misfits also who were mm -hmm. uh, assassins or attempted assassins, uh, Squeaky Frome and Hinkley and, and Oswald, that they really are the outliers of so the society, the misfits and the, um, that, that, that are full of resentment and rage and, and uh, disappointment in somehow or another that leads to the murderous instinct. Explain Jack Ruby to me. Well, Jack Ruby was a little hood from, uh, from Dallas. He had a club called the Carousel Club that was frequented by police officers of the uh, Dallas police force. He knew a lot of those police officers and, you know, would come frequently to the Dallas police headquarters to hand out cards and encourage them to come to his uh, club. This is another example of um, spontaneity. Jack Ruby on November the 22nd, well, let me back up a minute and say there were really two things that Jack Ruby loved in his life. One was his little dog named Sheba, and the other was uh, his strippers. And on November the 22nd, he had had this plea from one of his strippers that she, um, that she had lost a day or two of work and needed money. And so on November the 22nd, he piles little Sheba in the car and goes down to the Western Union office uh, to wire money to this hard-pressed employee of his. He does that, and then uh, he realizes that he's only f sort of 50 yards from the Dallas police headquarters, and he's heard on the radio that Oswald is going to be transferred from the city jail to the county jail the perp at walk. 10 o'clock that morning. So he looks at his watch, and it's way after 10 uh, 10 o'clock, and still he notices that there's quite a lot of activity down there. So out of curiosity, he walks down this 50 yards or so to the Dallas Police Center, walks down this automobile ramp unchallenged, 
and finds himself at the back of a uh, clutch of uh, police officers and reporters waiting for Oswald to emerge. And at that very moment, Oswald does emerge from a far door and uh, takes a few steps. And as you know from the television, Ruby pulls his way through the crowd and pulls out his weapon and shoots Oswald. So it's another one of these examples of how if Jack Ruby had wanted to kill Lee Harvey Oswald, he would not, couldn't possibly have known when he was going to emerge. And, you know, I mean, there could be no planning of that. It's, it's all a, a matter of, of chance and misfortune or, or good fortune. I mean, the, the reaction to the killing of Oswald was really celebrated throughout, um, you know, throughout the United States, I think. Well, but he was carrying, right? I mean, he had a gun. I, I doubt you would find that kind of thing happening in contemporary America, right? I mean, did he carry all the time? Is that? I don't know the answer to that, but I was, you know, it's Texas, right? Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> it's a rather common, common situation for people to be packing. And he was a thug. Then and, and now. But you said that he had heard on the radio that he was going to be transferred. So when you say it's impossible to know, right? that he knew the way things were done. And so it's conceivable, isn't it, that he came prepared to do this dirty thing? Well, I think it, it might be conceivable in the few minutes before as he walks down and realizes that he hasn't been transferred yet. But, you know, I mean, it is, as I say, an act of fate that he just happens to walk down at the very moment that Oswald emerges. I mean, if it had been two, three minutes before or two or three minutes after, Oswald would have been in that armored vehicle and on his way to the county jail. So, James Reston, what was the motivation again for Ruby shooting Oswald? Well, all we know, for, you know, to be the historian here, all we know is what he testified to in uh, his trial. And there were two things that he said were the reasons. One was that as a Jew, his name was Rubenstein. He told the court that he wanted to show, the, uh, now mind you, this is before the 1967 war, and still this aura was out there, this argument it was out there after the Holocaust that somehow Jews were, were complacent. He wanted to show that a Jew could be brave and courageous and, and aggressive. That's one argument he told the court. The second argument was that he said he wanted to relieve Jackie Kennedy of the suffering of a trial of her husband's assassin. So a very noble reason. Now, do we, do we believe these things? I don't think so. You know, I think that's the kind of thing that, you know, comes from a, a lawyer sitting down with his client and saying, you know, you're going to be asked why you did this and how about this and how about mm. that. So, so let's go back to Connolly. Now, why did uh, Oswald hate Connolly so much? Well, Lee Harvey Oswald had a ninth grade education, right? He bailed out in the 10th grade to, to go into the Marine Corps and did succeed by hook and crook to get through three years of military service in the U.S. Marine Corps and was honorably discharged. For some cockamamie reason, he decides almost immediately thereafter that he wants to defect to the Soviet Union. And so he goes to the Soviet Union and he has a great deal of difficulty. Indeed, he attempts suicide in the first few days of being in the Soviet Union because they don't immediately pick him up as a great hero. But at any rate, they finally do acquiesce in this request, and he, he's sent off to Minsk, Russia, where he goes to work in a radio factory. He acquires a wife, eventually Marina, and a child, and about a year and a half into this experience, two things have happened. One is that he has had a stipend from the Soviet Union as a kind of a reward for choosing the Soviet Union as opposed to America. But they kind of understand who he is into this experience, the Soviets do, and his stipend is removed, so he's no longer a hero and he's making something like half the amount of money. The second thing is that in January of 1962, he hears from his mother that his discharge has been summarily changed from honorable to dishonorable. And this is because he's basically a defector. 
Yes, but this has been done in secret in, with a, a summary judgment without any notice to him, without any ability for him to make a defense of this thing. And it's done on the basis of political activity after his military service. So the change in the discharge has nothing to do with his honorable service in the, in the Marine Corps. So he knows instinctively that with a ninth grade education and bad paper, that is to say a dishonorable discharge from the Marine Corps, he's going to have one heck of a time when he goes back to Texas and finding work. So he sits down and writes a very plaintive, heartfelt letter. I have a copy of it in Accidental Victim, in which he writes to the Secretary of the Navy, the appropriate official, because the Navy Department has sway over the U.S. Marine Corps, asking this fellow Texan and fellow uh, resident of Fort Worth to look into this unfairness and and change this, uh, this unfairness that's been done to him and to his family. Well, what he gets back from Connolly three weeks later is a classic Washington bureaucratic brush-off. I'm no longer Secretary of the Navy. Here's my successor's name, sincerely yours. And it comes to Lee Harvey Oswald in Minsk in a envelope that has emblazoned on the front, John Connolly for governor of Texas, and it has a picture of John Connolly's head in the midst of a Texas star. So it is my view that this becomes his, uh, the catalyst, in a way, for the, for the assassination a year and a half later, that he now has a, a way to personalize the, the great difficulties that he will have when he comes home because of this discharge. And if you study Lee Harvey Oswald's life from February of 1962 to 63, as I have done, the through line of that whole life is the attempt to change that discharge because it is such a disability to him for supporting his family. And because of the time, um, do you really think he had no idea that if he went to the Soviet Union, the FBI and all the rest of them would be after him? Well, I think he, he certainly would have understood that, and this actually is important later because when he does come back to the United States, he is indeed immediately interviewed by the FBI. This is little known as we come through this commemoration of the assassination that the FBI was very much on to Lee Harvey Oswald. So he would have expected that, I suppose, but the point is that when he would go for work to support himself and his wife and his new child, his baby, every time the same thing would happen. How much education have you had? Ninth grade education. What else have you done in your life? I was in the U.S. Marine Corps. Were you honorably discharged? And it is well documented in the Warren Commission report that every time the military discharge came up in an employment interview, he would freeze. And so I think what happened is that all of the difficulties that he experienced in returning home from the Soviet Union because of this discharge and because the unwillingness of the bureaucracy uh, to do anything about it personalized in the face of John Connolly on that envelope that started the whole thing, that he had a kind of obsession with Connolly. We are talking to James Reston, Jr., about the book, The Accidental Victim, JFK, Lee Harvey Oswald, and the Real Target in, Dabla in Dallas, uh, published by Zola Books. Okay, so tell us about how it happened. Bring us to the scene. Well, as I mentioned, Oswald had been interviewed twice when he came back from uh, the Soviet Union. He got involved in, um, in September of 1962 with a group that was protesting the... Um, United States policy towards Cuba, and he got in a scuffle in New Orleans, and he was interviewed yet again by the FBI. So he was in their files as somebody to watch if they had decided to watch him. Was Marina Oswald in any way influential with her husband? Did she freak out that he was behaving this way? I mean, were you able to tell any of that? 
Well, she was a very timid woman in those days and uh, spoke very little English, and indeed Oswald did everything he could to keep her from learning English. Hmm. He was a wife abuser, so she was really a kind of a beaten-down woman. But you may recall in the, in the lore of all of this that Oswald, once he acquires his rifle, takes a, a shot at General Edwin Walker, who was a right-wing nut. And this happens in the spring of 1963. Another one of these quirks of fate, the Dallas Police Department and the FBI conclude that the shot on Walker was something that Walker himself had staged. And so they don't really investigate thoroughly the, uh, this, uh, this act and never get on to Oswald. And, 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 and it's so important. How did he pick out Walker? Well, Walker had um, been cashiered out of the military because he was so right-wing. He had made public statements that Eleanor Roosevelt and Harry Truman were pinkos. And he became kind of the face of the radical right in America after he was cashiered out. You remember that there was James Meredith who was trying to get into Ole Miss at this point. Walker goes to uh, Oxford, Mississippi as the head of a protest against Meredith getting into Ole Miss, and he's arrested, and um, uh, he gets himself on the cover of Newsweek magazine as sort of the face of the radical right in America. So, you know, whether this was a political act on Oswald's part or an act of frustration, I mean, nobody can know. At any rate, the important thing is that that was not investigated. That's the first of what I've identified as seven accidents, actually, that lead to the actual death of LBJ. Uh, And and how do we we know that he was the guy? In other words, how do we know that he took the shot? Well, this only becomes clear after the assassination, actually, of Kennedy. And we learned about it. That he's fingered at this point. But at any rate, you you asked about Marina. She He comes back, and he confesses to her that he's taken this shot. Mm. And it's at that point, I think, in April that she understands he's become a very dangerous person. And there is another episode that's in the Warren Commission documents where he announces, ultimately, that it's Conley who is coming to town, and he straps on his pistol. And Marina knows at this point how dangerous he's become, and she she manages somehow to lock him in the bathroom. And they have this horrendous shouting match that goes on for a long time. And she doesn't let him out of the, uh, of the bathroom until he's come down emotionally. So people say, you know, why didn't, if he wanted to kill Conley, why didn't he do it at a different time? I think this is an episode where it shows that he was, in fact, ready to do it at a different time. You mentioned the six other accidents. They were? Well... The second accident has to do with the um, with the tremendous competition that goes on between the White House and the governor's office about the nature of the Dallas Strip or the Texas Strip generally. John Connolly knew that there were embarrassments that had taken place to figures Adlai Stevenson and indeed LBJ and Lady Bird Johnson in times past, and John uh, John Connolly was worried about an embarrassment that might befall the president in Dallas, and so he argued very strenuously against there being a motorcade at all. That's the second accident. Connolly loses that argument because JFK has this sentimentality about being close to the people, and he's very keen on on a motorcade. So had Connolly won that argument, then we wouldn't have had a, an accident. The third accident has to do with the venue of the speech for um, the president that day. There was a, a very intense debate that was going on between the Secret Service and the governor's office about the venue. The governor wanted what was called the trademark, which is a glossy building that very much reflected Dallas energetic business. And the Secret Service wanted a totally different place for, the, for that speech called the Women's uh, Building, which was in the Dallas Fairgrounds. Uh, they wanted it for security reasons, and the Secret Service loses that argument to uh, Governor Connolly, so the trademark becomes the venue for the speech. Now, this becomes 
critically important to the motorcade route that if the Secret Service had won that the, that the, the speech was to be given at the women's building, then the motorcade would have been a straight shot down Main Street of uh, Dallas and gone through Dealey Plaza a block away mm. from the book depository. So that's the third accident. The fourth has to do with the FBI knowledge of Oswald. As I said, there were really three interviews with him per se. And then a month before the assassination, they, uh, they interview Marina Oswald. Uh, she says that he is, uh, he is employed now at the book depository. So they knew a month beforehand that Oswald was employed there on what became the route for the motorcade. So, I mean, how did he get that job there? That's all a matter of, of happenstance. The fifth has to do with the bubble. It was raining that uh, morning in, um, in Fort Worth where that day began. And you remember that Kennedy had to sort of pop over from Fort Worth to Dallas. And at that point, the clouds had receded and it became a, a brilliant sunny day and it was decided that there would be no bubble on top of the car. It was not a bulletproof bubble, but I think when you when you think about the line of sight of Oswald's rifle, if that bi bubble had been on the top, uh, the reflections of the sun and of uh, the shadows and trees and so forth would have made it a more difficult thing. That's that's the fifth. The um, sixth is the uh, is the actual employment at at uh, the book depository, uh, which, you know, he just happened, that happened to be what mm. Oswald got um, and only a month beforehand. And indeed, the route of the motorcade past the book depository was not even announced in the Dallas Morning News until three days beforehand. And then the last accident is the back brace that Kennedy was wearing that day. And that was? Well, as you know, everybody knows uh, that uh, John Kennedy had this sure. terrible back in World War II, and he had an operation to fix his back problem. What people don't know as much is that in 1955, he was had uh, still terrible back problems and had another uh, back operation, which was botched. They put in a device, a metal device in his back that uh, didn't work, and it had to be taken out in a third operation. So this was sort of the um, physical disability that he suffered from for all those many years. And he had tried all kinds of different things, including self-medication to deal with it. But in 1963, what it had evolved into was relying on a back brace. Sure. Which would, uh, which I have seen at the National Archives. I think I'm the only writer writer who's ever seen it. Which was really straight out of Gone with the Wind. If you remember that that scene with Scarlett O'Hara holding onto the bedpost and Mammy winching yep. her into her girdle, this back brace had uh, shoelaces that first tightened it, and once the shoelaces were tightened, then there were three belts in it that had to mm. be tightened further. And then on November the 22nd, I mean, this is just so ghoulish, he had an ace bandage that was wrapped to make it even tighter mm. that went around the back brace and uh, was squirreled through his legs in a figure-eight configuration. So you could scarcely understand how the man could walk at all, but the point from his standpoint was that this presented to the world an upright military athletic uh, posture. Well, of course, this takes us to the critical piece of evidence, which is the Zapruder film. And there are, contrary to the entertaining notions of there being five shots and three shooters and all this nonsense, there are really only two shots, and they both come from Lee Harvey Oswald. And the first shot passes through the president's neck into John Connolly's back, goes through his entirely through his body, hits his wrist, and ends up in his thigh. Well, uh, you can mathematically analyze the Zapruder film by its frames. 
there were 18 frames per second to the old Super 8 cameras. And that meant that from the first shot, the first wounding shot, to the second shot, which is the killing shot of John F. Kennedy, there is five seconds. And what happens in those critical five seconds, if you analyze that film, is that Connolly, with this shot through his body, uh, begins to flail all over the car. He goes to the right and he goes to the left and he ultimately falls into his wife's lap in that five seconds. Now, I have talked to Iraq war veterans about what happens if you're shot through the neck. And they say, all oh, to a man, you would, you know, you would be blown forward, number one, and then you would, you would writhe around in terrible pain. I'm hit, I'm hit. What's clear from the Zapruder film is that John Kennedy remains seated bolt upright for those five critical seconds. Only his head jerks forward a bit, but his torso remains almost as if it's bolted to the back seat of that car. And that means for the second killing shot, he was the only remaining target in the car. So Oswald missed? No, he didn't. The first shot could very well have killed both men. If it had been just a few millimeters to the left, it would have hit the president's spinal cord and killed him. If it had been a few milli millimeters a different way, that same bullet would have hit Connolly's heart. So he could very well have killed both men with the first shot. Is that what he wanted to the, do, get both of them at the same time? Or Well, yeah. you know something? I mean, we all in these situations want to become the assassin. We want to sure. think, you sure. know, try to think what goes through a person's mind. Well, you wrote um, the book. <laughs> Yes. Let me say this, that this is not science. This is right. history. And, and you know, the theories or theorems cannot be proven scientifically here. We're dealing with the compendium of evidence and what's convincing. So uh, what I have relied on as, as to why he would have taken a second shot, if indeed his real target was Connolly, on the world of psychiatry... And the world of psychiatry says that there is something called the motor program, or sometimes it's called obsessive repetition. And what that means is, is if you uh, set out to do so dastardly an act as, as killing someone, that you're in a hugely excited mode where you're, you're operating absolutely on instinct. And... What the psychiatrist, I think, will, will say is it, was, it would be almost impossible if you had started the act with the first shot to make an intellectual judgment that, oops, my real intended target is out of the picture. I need to stop here. That he's just, you know, reloading and aiming again and firing at whatever is there. Now, I think this is further bolstered by what the U.S. Marine Corps manual says about hand-to-hand -hand combat where, of course, you know, Lee Harvey Oswald was trained for three years in marine um, procedures. And what they say is, you know, if you see your target, you just keep shooting until, uh, until your target is dead, until the enemy is dead. I think that was deep within his psychology. What's the reaction to the book? I mean, you, you said before well, people are sort of married to their views on this. In my mind, it almost becomes religious. You know, people are really quite sure of themselves on this, and they, and they get an idea and they stay with it. So have people gotten angry at you? No, I don't think they have. If I get an opportunity, as you have given me here, to lay this out, not in a two-minute soundbite, sure. I think almost universally my experience in the last two months in making this argument is that it's convincing that if you present the impossibility that so wretched a character of this could have been the agent for somebody else, it brings you down to, okay, why did he do this uh, out, of his own, out of his own emotional mindset? And you put together this, these two attitudes, one of admiration for Kennedy, the other of, uh, of obsession and fixation with, uh, with Connolly, and it makes sense. It's a simple explanation 
of why there would be a deep-seated fury that would lead to murder. You know, all these other theories, certainly on conspiracy, falter on the character of Lee Harvey Oswald. And then if you don't accept my view about a burning emotional internal uh, hate and obsession, then you're left with uh, what the Warren Commission said was, oh, he killed Kennedy because he was a Marxist. Well, there are millions of Marxists, and they're not all pathological killers. Or, you know, he wanted to be a figure of history. Well, it's kind of hard for me to think he woke up on November the 22nd and said, I think I'll go kill the president and become a figure of, of history. It just, I think this is partly because I have written uh, novels that, you know, I've always wanted to know what makes people tick. Yep. And, you know, Marxism as a reason for an assassination, in this case, I think is inconceivable. That it's even posited that he wanted to decapitate the government of the United States by killing the president that's the kind of argument that Washington power figures can relate to, but it doesn't really, I think, go to who Lee Harvey Oswald was. So, you, so if, you, if you don't find my argument convincing, then you're left with these big thought intellectual ideas, abstract ideas that motivate him, and I just don't think they hold water. Yeah. What a fascinating hour. We've been speaking with author James Reston Jr. about his latest book, The Accidental Victim, JFK Lee Harvey Oswald and the Real Target in Dallas, published by Zola Books. You can find him online at www.restonbooks, that's one word, dot com, or at www.jrobsessions, one word, dot com. James Reston Jr., thanks so much for taking the time to be with us. You were very generous, and I appreciate it very much. And I'm Alan Chartok. It's been a real pleasure. been listening to Dr. Alan Shartok, President and CEO of WAMC Northeast Public Radio and Professor Emeritus at the University at Albany. For more information on the In Conversation with Alan series or to order additional copies of this or any interview in the series, call 1-800-323-9262 or visit us on the web at wamc.org.